Okay, uh, we're on the usual handout, Salvation and Atonement in the Bible, and we're going to start with Jeremiah. We got through Isaiah last week, and we're going to start with Jeremiah 3. That's on page 6 of the handout, verses 11 and following. And we're short today on people, thanks to the heavy end of the quarter where students are sleepy in the morning on Sabbath. So we're going to um, take turns, Christina and I, in going through this. Christina, why don't you read verses 11 to 14? Then the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself less guilty than false Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north. And say, Return, faithless Israel, says the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God, and scattered your favors among strangers under every green tree, and have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O faithless children, says the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. That's interesting. God uses there the legal term for husband, apparently, from your, according to your version. I don't have my Hebrew Bible here uh, to be able to look that up. But uh, I have uh, husband there instead of master. Hmm. So it must be the term ball, which is the term for a legal term for husband, which also means master. We're going to get to something different in in Hosea on that. But um, the main question I have about this is why must Judah acknowledge its guilt to receive God's mercy? If, if If the death of Jesus is meant to appease God's wrath, why is repentance necessary? Or is it necessary for salvation? Christina, you're studying to be a physician. (laughs) What would happen if you had a patient come to you who refused to cooperate? Uh, This patient uh, had a smoking habit. Say you were a pulmonary specialist, which I know you're not. (laughs) probably planning to be but um, if you were a pulmonary specialist and you had a patient who was smoking and the patient said I will not quit smoking uh, could you help the patient? No, it's not much I could do Maybe maybe you could rush to emergency when they're not breathing Mm -hmm. and and administer life support (laughs) until they could breathe again but Unless a, a person, unless an ill person admits that they're ill and, and turns around from that illness and says, I want to get better, I want to be well, there's nothing God can do. Uh, which suggests here that sin is not a legal problem, primarily. Sin is a very real uh, social spiritual, mental problem. And until we admit it, uh, there's no healing. I think of another another analogy is from the field of psychology. Uh, a client who comes to a psychologist for counseling 
and the psychologist starts inquiring, uh, asking different questions, and the person refuses to disclose what is really going wrong, uh, what is really happening, can that psychologist help their client? And I think the answer is the same. So I think this is why it's so important. And what is interesting here is that I won't stay angry forever, only acknowledge your wrongdoing. And what God wants is not appeasement, but he wants repentance. Uh, we're on the handout on page six. And uh, page six at the very bottom. Uh, we're just finished discussing Jeremiah 3. Numbers, oh, you, uh, you're, that's right, you have the old document. So, it, but it is, if you count, it's page six. And Jeremiah 3 is what we just dealt with. So we're ready to turn to Jeremiah 6. And I'll go ahead and read this. We'll go counter. We'll go clockwise. 620. What use to me is incense from Sheba or sweet cane from a faraway land? Your entirely burned offerings won't buy your pardon. Your sacrifices won't appease me. What do you do with that? Well, for my prophets of Israel class, I'm learning <laughs> that uh, God is more concerned with people and relationships than ceremony. Right, right. Um, what is interesting to me is that this this verse is counter, I think, especially Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian thinking, and I would suspect Canaanite thinking as well. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information about how they viewed their offerings. Uh, ritual texts don't include explanations; they just tell you what to do. So we don't have a lot of explanation of how they viewed their offerings. But if it's anything like Mesopotamia, everything that you did in religion was to appease God's, the gods' wraths, uh, the wrath of the gods. And here God is just adamant, nope, I won't be bought off, I won't be appeased. That's not what I want at all. And... Uh, I think this verse makes it very clear, but what will make it clear is to go to Jeremiah 7, and, and this will be review for you, of course, Jonathan. You want me to read it? Uh, yes, please. Jeremiah 7, 21 to 26. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead and add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not give them commands about the burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their own hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and didn't, did more evil than their ancestors. Now, this is this is a conundrum, and, and um, I don't know what version do you have, Christine? NRSV. NRSV, okay, and your version is? NIV. NIV. Would you read verse 21 again, and slower? Okay. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. Okay, verse 22 is what I really wrote. Okay. 
For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings. You got that just in there? That's not in the Hebrew. Ooh. Mine just just says, I did not speak to them or command them. My version's even stronger. On the day I brought your ancestors, this is a common English Bible. On the day I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I didn't say a thing. I gave no instructions about entirely burned offerings or sacrifices. Hmm. So this this provides a conundrum, and the NIV tried to smooth it out. No, I didn't just talk about it, but I also said, you see, and and that's nice, but that's not what the Hebrew says. And I think that they that some uh, scholars behind the NIV have claimed. That there's certain grammatical aspects of that verse that allow that require the just to be put in, but I I'm wary of grammar being used to to justify interpretation when a straightforward reading of the text doesn't require it. So so is it true that when God brought Israel out of Egypt that He didn't speak to them at all? about sacrifices and offerings. This is now thinking in Books of Moses class. Uh, do you remember when he brought them out of Egypt? In the Hebrew, it's on the day that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Did God speak to them about sacrifices and burnt offerings? I don't remember. <laughs> he didn't actually. Uh, let's go to uh, Exodus 19. I would say... Exodus 19 is kind of the watershed chapter because they're now clearly out of Egypt. They're at Sinai. And if you were to look at chapters, let's see, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, those chapters, which is the story of them coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, camping and and running out of food and, and all of those stories. There's nothing said in them about offerings, sacrifices, burnt offerings, what have you. Uh, so the other Sinai, and this is where you might expect God to say, okay, now you should offer sacrifices. Because Moses told Pharaoh, the reason we need to go three days into the wilderness is we need to make offerings. And the reason we need to bring our flocks and herds, because Pharaoh wanted him to leave them behind, is because we need to make offerings to God. And we don't know which ones are going to be without blemish so that we can offer them. Because the trucks through the wilderness would make some without blemish. So presumably, now that they're out of Egypt, at a place where they're stopped and camping for a while, you should they, now they're going to make offerings. But there aren't any offerings made. In fact, so the verses 1 to 5, or 1 to 3, I should say 1 and 2, uh, talk about how they got to Sinai and set up camp. And then verse 3. Um, Christina, would you read verses 3 to 6? Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples, 
Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Okay. Uh, it doesn't quite say you shall be my God and I shall I will be your I mean you should be my people and I will be your God. It doesn't quite say that, but you will be a kingdom of priests to me is essentially the same message. Now, uh, the next chapter there's there's not a lot there's there's dialogue between God and Moses here, but it doesn't really pertain to our question. So, uh, going into chapter 20, and and if you look at verse two, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt. Out of house of slavery, you must have no other gods before me. That's essentially the same message. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. If we go now to 22 and following, the Lord said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, you saw for yourselves how he spoke with you from heaven. Don't make alongside me gods of silver or gold for yourselves. Make for me an altar from fertile soil on which to sacrifice your entirely burned offerings, your well-being sacrifices, your sheep and your oxen. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I make sure my name is remembered. But if you do make for me an altar from stones, don't build it with chiseled stone, since using your chisel on a stone will make it impure. Don't climb into my altar using steps. Then you won't, your loins won't be exposed by so doing. Well, you could say he's implying sacrifices here, but it's not a clear command, is it? I did not command, is, is how it's worded in Jeremiah. So we go to chapter, uh, after chapters 21, 22, go to chapter 23. And it's talking about <clears throat> Sabbaths and festivals, starting with verse 10. I'm not going to have you read this. But working through it, uh, it talks about first the seventh year uh, of release, uh, a release of the land and, and so on, and then the Sabbath. And then it has a, a festival of unleavened bread. And then verse 18, uh, Jonathan, uh, would you read verses 18 and 19? Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Uh, Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. It seems like an odd collection of of laws. And there is... There is a question about what is happening here in, in Genesis... I mean, in Exodus 21 to 23... Because it seems to be a real take. Many of the laws of Exodus 21 and 22 are a take on Hammurabi's laws. This has been demonstrated by uh, David P. Wright, who wrote a book called Inventing God's Law, in which he shows the parallels between Exodus 21 and 22 and Hammurabi's laws. So it isn't clear, absolutely definitively clear that God gave those laws at Sinai on the day he brought them out of Egypt, so to speak. Uh, they may have been laws that under inspiration uh, were that Moses wrote later. So, and he put them there because this becomes the book of the covenant. Now, it is possible that the bulk of these laws were composed there at Sinai because of the fact that the book of the covenant becomes a very important part of the the covenant process that we have here in Exodus 19 to 24. So I'm not trying to rule that out completely. 
But um, it, it almost seems like God is assuming that these people are going to offer sacrifices. But he never commands it here at all. There's no conjunction, offer sacrifice, just how to offer them. Now let's go to Exodus 24. They were keeping the Sabbath before they received the Ten Commandments. Right. And does that mean that God had given them that command prior to giving them those commandments, the, the covenant on Sinai, um, how did they know to keep the Sabbath law? Yeah, that's that's a good question. The Bible doesn't really tell us. The Bible doesn't really tell us because it it doesn't explain the origins of the Sabbath. I mean, you first really hear a command about the Sabbath at Sinai, mm-hmm. and and my my perspective is really that the Sabbath was a gift, and that it, the memory of it was handed down generation by generation. That it was a gift in Eden with creation, because it's tied to creation. Mm-hmm. And that it was handed down generation to generation, so that they had a, a dim memory of it, but they weren't keeping it until they have the manna situation. And then, then God tells them, okay, this is how you do the manna. God is very experiential in his leading Israel out of Egypt. You don't have just setting down laws and expecting Israel to obey. They're not ready for that. Um, he's parenting them. And in parenting, you teach by experience more than you teach by precept. Because children adapt to how you behave more than they adapt to what you say they ought to do. And and so God uh, gives them this thing of manna. And he says, now on on the sixth day you gather twice as much, and then on the seventh day not at all. And a lot of them don't obey. So that indicates that they weren't as locked into the Sabbath. And so God says, how long will you refuse to keep my Sabbaths? They're in Exodus, I think, 16. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this relational kind of context mm-hmm. in which everything is. And, and I think we need to keep that in mind when we look at laws in the Old Testament, that they have their, their cradle is narrative. Their cradle is uh, the experiences they're having and how those laws relate to that. Well, we have Exodus 24. This is when they actually form the covenant with God. And they're told to come up uh, to the mountain. And um, Moses, I'm, I'm walking us through this. Moses uh, came and told the people all God's words and the case laws. And all the people answered in unison. Uh, everything the Lord has said we will do. So Moses then wrote down all the Lord's words. And... He appointed, verse 5, uh, Robert, would you yes. read, uh, read in a good, strong voice, verse, verses 5 to 7. All right. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Why don't you go ahead and read verse eight? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay. now this looks like a sacrifice, doesn't it? Kind of. I mean, they had to uh, slaughter an animal. These were sacrifices of well-being. It doesn't finish by telling us 
that they burnt this uh, offering of well-being. But the real purpose of the sacrifice was the sprinkling of the blood. And that sprinkling of the blood, I believe, functioned in the same way as this ancient understanding of taking on the terms of the covenant, and you may slaughter me and sprinkle my blood everywhere if I do not take the terms of the covenant. So it's, it's more than just a sacrifice. It doesn't say anywhere that God told Moses to do this, does it? So we don't know whether Moses understood that this is the way they were going to make the seal this covenant. After all, they said, all the Lord has said we will do. That, that's the verbal assent that you would say in making a covenant, especially a treaty with a, a suzerain where you're the vassal. But it isn't clear that God instituted this. So the next time we hear about sacrifices, now, of course, it's implied in the building of the sanctuary. So it's like all along, sacrifices are assumed, but they're not expressly commanded. And it's in, in Leviticus even. Uh, let's go to Leviticus chapter 1. Let's see, Christina, would you read verses 1 and 2? Please? The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. When or if. Uh, Verse 3. Why don't you go ahead and read verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. So if. The language of the entire uh, sections, mostly chapters 1 through 5, have to do with offerings is not you shall bring and this is what you shall bring it's if you bring when you bring then so I I claim that Jeremiah 7 is saying it exactly right that God did not on the day he brought them out of Egypt he did not say anything about offerings he did not command them to bring offerings he said but instead he said I, I will be your God and you will be my people does that make sense? Which infers that that's what God's preference is. He's not so concerned about offerings as he is our hearts. Um, and we're going to see this. This is, this is very much part of Jeremiah's claim. So let's go back to Jeremiah. And chapter 7 again. There's more to chapter 7. But this time we will read 16 to 20. Um, 30 to 32, yes. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the town of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger, but I am the one they are, but am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord. Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, it is what the Sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on trees of the fe- on the trees of the field, and on the crops of your land. And it will burn and not be quenched. And then 30 and 32. Yeah. 30 through 32. Yeah, we're, what we're reading is around this passage that we just read. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. 
They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it ever enter my mind. So beware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Okay. So you have this this thing going on of sacrifices. They're doing sacrifices, but to the wrong God. I should say the wrong God. And is that a problem? And why is it a problem? It is a problem uh, because God doesn't want them worshiping any other gods or uh, falling to the same mistakes as the other. Uh, and what's nations. what's wrong with worshiping other gods? God's a jealous God. <laughs> he wants I'm married to you, and don't you dare uh, cheat me. Right, right. Cheat on me. In verse 19, it says, uh, "Is it I whom they provoke?" Says the Lord, "Is it not themselves to their own hurt?" So, yes. Is it? Are you really offending me? Are you really making me angry? Or are you hurting yourselves? As, as uh, Jonathan's version says, to your own shame. Mine has, um, are, aren't they in fact humiliating themselves? See, if you really study ancient Near Eastern polytheism, the worship of other gods put the worshiper in the status of a slave. And everything centered around doing the right rituals. It was all about sacrifices. It was all about offerings. It was all about appeasing, appeasement. It was more cons- of more, greater concern to deity in the ancient Near East to have their tummies full with the right, best kinds of food than to have a high level of morality because the gods of the ancient Near East had a very low level of, of morality. They weren't into morality. Uh, now, Shamash, the god of Mesopotamians, and Shapash the god of Canaanites, who was the sun god, this god was into justice. But justice always was involved with self-interest, not in concern for the other as much. The king was supposed to execute concern for his subjects. Uh, That was just good common sense. You don't take care of your subjects. Your subjects aren't going to serve you. But... But by and large, there's not a huge emphasis of God's demanding high moral treatment, and particularly not love. In fact, there is no good word for love as we understand it from the New Testament, in the Hebrew Bible or in the ancient Near East. There's no adequate word, maybe, is what I should say. The word love, ahav, is so tied to treaty language as in I love I will love my suzerain king and, and be loyal to him. It's not love in sen- and a, in the sense of of an internal response to being loved. It's not love in the sense of unselfishly uh, wanting the best for another person. That kind of love uh, we have to go to the New Testament to find uh, the word agape. And so consequently, 
when God says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, I'm sure God meant agape. But he knew that the people would understand that in terms of treaty language. And so consequently, the Bible, the Old Testament never says God is Ahav, God is love. It never says that. It says that God is gracious, he is merciful, he is compassionate. Compassion is the one word that possibly we have in the Old Testament to ascribe to God that approaches agape. So, I probably got a little off track here. I have a question. But, but that's the, the qualitative difference between the gods that the, they worshipped. The gods they worshipped were sexually immoral, uh, and sex was a form of sacrifice, I believe. I believe they had ritual sex, despite claims that there was no sacred prostitution. Prostitution is another matter. That's sex for sale. But I think they had ritual sex. Uh, which, of course, is hard to prove or disprove. But the Bible indicates that they do. Uh, so so there's just the, not the moral level. Yeah. Um, did, didn't they have to sacrifice, though? Because uh, without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins? Yeah, Hebrews. It's Hebrews that, that, that states that, clear. and they said under the law. It's under the law. There is no forgiveness of sins without blood. If okay. we're under grace, right, and not under law. Uh, you see, here's here's the thing that's happened, and I want to I want to reiterate this because I've, I think Robert, you weren't in Books of Moses when I taught this. Yeah, next quarter. Oh, you t- you haven't taken it yet. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you get a preview. If we go back to the original covenant, God's preferred covenant, and Noah, uh, it's a promise. It's a promise of what God is going to do. There are some stipulations given to Noah before that promise is made. Uh, those Those stipulations are to keep Noah alive and his descendants alive. By the blood of man shall no man shed. No, if 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 man sheds blood by man his blood will be shed Mm -hmm. for in the image of God he made man don't eat the flesh of the blood Um, blood is is sacred life is sacred Uh, don't kill that's the basic stipulation so keep alive and and don't repeat what happened before the flood what about Adam and Eve I mean not Adam I'll get to to that I'm, I'm talking about covenant now I'm not talking about sacrifice so, so God forms this, and the original covenant is a promise to be received by faith. So then we move to Abraham. And the first covenant God makes with Abraham in, in chapter uh, 12, no, 15. God promises him descendants. And Abraham believes God, verse 6. Abraham believes God. And God considers that his righteousness. And then God moves to land grant and says, I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham says, how do I know I'm going to get it? Oops, where's Abraham's faith? Fell flat. So God says, I guess we're going to have to form a covenant. And that means some cutting. So take some animals, divide them, cut them into pieces. And God himself goes through those pieces taking on the terms of the covenant, saying, you may slaughter me like you did these animals if I do not keep 
my terms of the covenant. It's still a covenant of promise. God is still the one who fulfills it. A few chapters later, Ishmael is born. Oops, what happened to Abraham? Abraham lost his faith. And he tried to fulfill the terms of the covenant by himself. Right? Yeah. By works. So God says, okay, oops, I think you're going to have to do some more cutting. If you're going to take on the terms of the covenant, you have to do the cutting on yourself. Circumcision. So now you have a shift from a covenant of a promise. And I'm, I'm, I'm not basing this on Paul, but Paul completely understands this. You now make a shift from the covenant of a promise to receive by faith which is God's original plan, to a covenant that's made by blood, by cutting. And it's the Sinai, because they've made that shift. God offers them the same terms of the covenant in Exodus 19. You are a kingdom of priests and be a holy nation. That's his preferred covenant right there. And the people say, all the Lord has said we will do. We will fulfill the terms of the covenant. What do you have to do then? More blood. More cutting. And so you have the sprinkling of the blood on the people. The people say, we will keep this law. Did they ever keep it? No. We can't. If they had trusted God and said, we accept your promise. We will allow you to fulfill it in our lives. We trust you to do that. The whole history of Israel would have been vastly different. Now, I do believe that God instituted the original sacrifice. But it was meant to be a very simple offering. And I think that Adam and his descendants did not fully understand the meaning of that sacrifice. I think clouded by Satan's lies, they believed they were appeasing God's wrath. But if you go to um, the issue of the blood, we covered that a lot in Leviticus. And we had, a, we had a whole handout on that. So I would refer you back to that. Yeah. Um, because the blood is not about appeasement. And we made that very clear yeah, with, with Kipper. With this one. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, under the law, why did there need to be blood for forgiveness of sin? I think it's because the people could not trust God to forgive them. And they needed the blood to assure them that they were forgiven. I don't ever think the blood made God forgive us. And I don't think that the text says that. The text leaves it open. You can translate it that way or or interpret it that way. But it, it is not necessary. It just says that under this law, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. Not God will not forgive. Yeah, I gotta look at it some more. <laughs> and and keep in mind that sacrifices. God took a great risk in even having us do sacrifices. The original sacrifice was supposed to show that sin leads to death. And to illustrate that, instead they became perverted to appease divine anger. And more than that, that what really appeased the gods was to offer your children, and more specifically, your firstborn, 
who is the most important child you had. And so you have that problem in Jeremiah 7. This is one reason he's up in arms about the sacrifices. That isn't what God really wanted. He wanted to be your God and to you to be his people. And here, the, and here you are offering your children to God as food to appease his anger. Away with that. So Jeremiah 9:23 to 24. And why don't you read this, Robert? Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What could be clearer? This is, this is not about bloodshed here. I am one who acts with kindness, justice, and righteousness. I am one who does this. You don't have to make me that way. I'm not a God you have to, to placate. You see, if God is the kind of person that has to be appeased, even by the death of his son, then he is not who he really is. He is not I am who I am. Because that very name denotes a God who does not change his mind. And he doesn't have to be manipulated in his thinking by blood. And he doesn't require that kind of satisfaction by blood. We're, we're going to get to understanding that more fully when we get to Romans. But... Um, The heathen gods, the the gods of the pagan religions, were gods who you had to manipulate, you had to buy off, you had to persuade, you had to placate. They weren't gods who already were forgiving. They would ascribe that to them, but they knew that in any kind of situation where they were in trouble, they had to placate, appease, grovel, whatever, to try to get the gods on their side. So I'm, I'm still attempting to understand this. So if, my, if I'm a little awkward in how I present it, bear with me. Um, hopefully we'll get it down soon. I'm going to skip over Jeremiah 30 and move quickly to the to. In fact, I'm going to I'm going to re- skip over the next three uh, passages and go to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. We have to do this today because we already talked about it, uh, the covenant. And, uh, uh, Christina, you want to read 31, verses 31 to 34. Mm-hmm. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Where's the blood? Jesus' sacrifice was the one that would that be the one that, that that would give us forgiveness of sins and bring into this new covenant? It would. 
but not because they changed God's mind so he would forget. I agree. And I think that's, that's the important thing. Now, I know the way theologians say this, it didn't change God's mind, it just satisfied his, his wrath or satisfied his justice. But that does suggest that God had to have something external to himself in order to forgive, which means he did have a change of mind. He did have to have something uh, external from himself. No, what forgiveness, what the Old Testament really says is that God's forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, everything comes from within. It's who he is. It's not who somebody has to make him become. And I think it's very important that we understand that. But I'd like you to look at this covenant. This is the preferred covenant. Are there, is there anything we have to do in there? It's all God's actions, right? It's all God's promise. I will, I will, I will. The only thing is, I, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is not a command. That's a promise. I will write my laws within them. And, and how does he do that? You remember the, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? It, it, towards the end it says, And by his knowledge will my servant make many righteous? By his knowledge. What is the knowledge that Jesus had? To disclose the Father to the exactly. world, his character. Excellent. Uh, this is eternalized that they know the, the only true God and Jesus Christ in Yosef. It's all the same. Where, where is this? Uh, John 17, 3. And John, um, four, I think Robert was citing John 14, 9. Uh, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I thought that when we, we talked about in Leviticus that sin or that um, offering was, uh, sacrifice was atonement for sin, not for God. It is. And so it it's is. Like... But you see, what that suggests is that sin is the problem. Uh-huh. And if sin, sin is the problem, not God. When, when we make it a problem for God to forgive, then we, we're making it God is the problem, right? Uh-huh. So sin is the problem, and sin is something that happens in us. It's not something out there on a document, on a legal document, merely. It is something that happens internally in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I will not accept forgiveness as long as I cling to sin. So what Jesus' death is bring me to the realization that sin leads to death. That God is in the, re- in the rescue mode. He's always the one who's saving. He is not the one who's destroying. And when I realize that, I'm willing to accept his forgiveness. I'm willing to turn away from sin. I'm willing to repent, which is where we started and Jeremiah this morning. All of those things come together. So this is this is the start of munching on this more fully. We'll move on to Ezekiel next week. And why don't we close with prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the understanding of you that the Old Testament presents if we read it as a narrative. That you are God who makes promises to keep. And if we just would let you fulfill those promises in us and trust you to do it and come to know you, you would be able to write your laws in our hearts. You would be able to 
restore the damage done, we would be willing to receive your forgiveness so freely given. May we fully grasp that you are the forgiver. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.